Hello, and welcome to the Zondits Energy Podlet. I'm Gita. And I'm Elihu. And thanks for joining us for Season 1. Hey everybody, welcome to the Podlet. Welcome. Elihu, what's going on? Not too much. Um, I was just reading a very interesting article about how there are now 10 states, plus DC, that have fully legalized marijuana. That's that's a lot, and you know what? Um, indoor growing, it's estimated to be ten times more energy intensive than a typical commercial office building. So that's a lot. It's a crazy amount, and it's happened kind of quickly. Uh, I mean, indoor growing facilities still represent a very small portion of our total national electric load, but in certain areas, it can be a lot higher. I heard that Denver is one of one of those yeah. areas. Um, those growing facilities account for something like 4% of the city's electric consumption, which is a lot. Yeah, and it makes load pockets, which have infrastructure investment implications, reliability implications, it's a big deal. It's a big deal. So certainly states and cities from an infrastructure perspective and, and definitely utilities are, are going to be interested in energy efficiency for these facilities, for these operations. Yeah, and there's pressure within the businesses themselves actually to get a handle on their energy use and energy costs um, up to somewhere between 40 to 60 percent of a building's, of a uh, grow facility's operation costs uh, are represented by energy use, which is just astronomical compared to other kinds it's of building huge. It's huge. It's yeah. huge. I could definitely see why efficiency and renewables would be something that those uh, business owners would be looking into. Um, you know, but it's it's all new. This this is a very nascent industry. Absolutely, and as it gets more and more competitive, those all those operation costs are going to have to get squeezed, and people are going to figure out ways to be more and more efficient. So we actually, to learn more about this issue, talked to a few ERS experts on indoor agriculture efficiency. So we're going to play an epi- uh, a interview with them now. Let's do it. Great. Hey everybody, um, I'm here with two colleagues of mine, Jesse Remillard and Nick Collins, who um, are engineers at uh, ERS up in our uh, main office. Um, and they are experts in the fields of in- indoor agriculture um, efficiency. So Jesse, Nick, welcome. Hello. Hi. Um, it would be uh, great to get um, a little introduction to um, what your experience is in indoor agriculture and cannabis grow efficiency um, and, you know, get an idea of, of where your experience comes from. Just kind of introduce us to, to the lay of the land. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Nick and I have been work, investigating uh, indoor agriculture environments specifically um, related to the production of cannabis for a little more than three years, probably close to three and a half years now. We've we've worked on both um, projects related to implementation, uh, it, so receiving incentives through an energy efficiency program as well as on more of evaluating um, those projects on the backside. Um, so we've done work in Massachusetts, we're doing work currently in Colorado, and we've also done some work for some uh, for a Canadian utility. That's great. Um, so one thing that's been in the news a lot recently um, 
has been the legalization of both medical and recreational marijuana. So it would be interesting to know from your perspective, how has that uh, nascent industry impacted utilities and, and, and how we're looking at the impact of uh, those operations on the grid? Sure. Um, you know, something that is interesting about, um, you know, indoor cannabis cultivation in particular, but really any, you know, indoor controlled environment agriculture is that it's a very energy intensive process. You're trying to replicate, you know, ideal grow conditions in an indoor space. So you've got to provide everything. You've got to provide the light. You've got to provide all of the space conditioning. You've got to provide supplemental CO2. And it can definitely cause sort of localized problems with utilities in grids. Um, there's a lot of load growth associated with this industry as, you know, not only medicinal but adult use or rec recreational markets come online. You know, the load growth of the industry in and of itself uh, isn't enough to take down the grid of an entire state or something, uh, but there are many instances where, you know, individual substations uh, cannot handle the increase in loads uh, associated with, you know, facilities coming online. It also represents an interesting opportunity for utilities in their demand-side management programs. Uh, because it is an emerging industry, there are not a lot of standard practices. Uh, the engineering and science rigor that has been applied to so many other industries and industrial processes is really only just starting to be applied to this industry. So you have it's hard to even define what a baseline or a standard facility would be in this industry. That's a whole other topic. Uh, but safe to say that your typical cannabis facility, indoor cultivation, is, is highly energy intensive and is relatively poor performing. There's quite a bit of opportunity to substantially improve the energy performance and productivity of these facilities. So it's an interesting opportunity for utilities in their demand-side management programs to work with these facilities uh, to claim energy savings, to improve the performance and, and get some energy savings along with that. Yeah, that's, it's really interesting that you mentioned that it's kind of uh, the Wild West in terms of um, assessing a baseline for, for those facilities. And, and I imagine that there's a ton of work being done just to assess um, what they currently look like right now and areas for improvement. Yep, we, we've done one baseline assessment for a utility in Canada, and we are in the works on two other baseline studies right now for cannabis specifically. Um, and again, a lot of that comes down to the utilities in this new customer class and trying to figure out, you know, how do you work with them, what are the opportunities, and for any claimed efficiency measures, you know, what is, what is a reasonable baseline? Um, there are certain aspects of the process that it's fairly easy to identify a baseline practice, uh -huh. uh, but there are m many aspects of the process that it's it's very difficult to identify specific standard practices or baselines. Almost every facility solves the problem differently, um, which is part of what makes it so interesting to work in this field. Sure, yeah. Um, so certainly, you know, you mentioned that um, uh, controlled environment agriculture operations are pretty pretty energy intensive. So, you know, many of us don't have experience uh, in indoor agriculture. I certainly don't. Um, but it would be great to know kind of 
what what is uh, what's the flow of energy there? Yeah, abs- absolutely. Um, yeah, as energy engineers, they get really excited about seeing uh, such an energy intensive industry that is so new enter kind of enter the, the the market. So it's you know it's really exciting to uh, to be um, to be working with these facilities. The the flow of energy, um, you know, the primary driver of production is starts with the lighting, which um, you know most folks the industry standard practice is is pretty standard at thousand watt these double ended thousand watt high pressure sodium fixtures. So they they end up putting a whole bunch of these in a room and that stacks up pretty quickly because each one of those is one kW. So there's a ton of energy use there, and that creates a lot of heat in in these, um, in wherever they're placed, the rooms or, you know, room or a greenhouse, they generate a lot of heat that has to be, has to be dealt with. Um, the plants themselves, you know, obviously are watered and, re- um, and require a regular uh, watering re- re- regime. And all of that water has to be dealt with through some type of dehumidification, whether mm-hmm. you're, you're, you know, ventilating in a greenhouse or using mechanical dehumidification or other methods um, in an indoor space. Mm-hmm. So it's it's kind of, um, it's you know, the, the water is driving dehumidification energy use, um, you know, light, lighting, you know, is a, is a heavy energy use as well. And then that drives uh, the cooling um, energy use. Uh, so I, th- I think that those are the primary drivers of, of energy use. But Nick, yeah, no, they, that's that's really it. And, you know, there's a lot of nuance here. If you're talking about uh, a complete indoor grow, some people might refer to that as a, a warehouse grow or a sealed environment um, versus a traditional greenhouse where they're leveraging a lot of outdoor air for ventilation and dehumidification versus like a hybrid facility that's essentially a fully climate controlled facility but has translucent envelope elements like a translucent roof so they're able to leverage some of the daylight um, but yeah Jesse's Jesse's right on you know your, your primary sensible loads come in the form of of the horticultural lighting um, what is typical in the in a flowering room is a lighting power density anywhere between probably 60 to 70 watts per square foot. Uh, that's intense. That's really really high. And you know the other element that is just critical to understanding these facilities uh, that that not everyone is as familiar with as maybe they they could be is the irrigation that goes into a room. Uh, almost all of the irrigation water that goes into a room. Uh, or into the plants or into the media that the plants are grown in is released into the atmosphere through evapotranspiration, which is a combination of evaporation of moisture off of the grow media, as well as transpiration, which is the plant's process of of gas exchange or, or breathing, essentially. So you have large volumes of moisture being released into the air, you know, in a 24-hour period. And in order to maintain conditions, that air has to be dehumidified one way or another and in a sealed grow and an indoor grow that's done through what I'm going to call mechanical dehumidification. Mm-hmm. The other thing that's really interesting in these spaces that again is just not really well understood and definitely leads to a lot of issues with design on the HVAC side is that process of evapotranspiration. Uh, it, it acts as a swamp cooler so you know folks are familiar with an evaporative cooler that's what the plants do that process actually converts sensible load within the space 
to latent load. Uh, so the plants actively cool the space, but in doing so, release a lot of moisture into the space. So you end up with low sensible heat ratios in these rooms, uh, meaning that you've got maybe half the load is sensible, maybe half the load is latent. And typical unitary HVAC equipment is in no way designed to handle such low sensible heat ratios. So you see spaces that are being conditioned with equipment that is totally inappropriate uh, for the loads that are generated in these facilities. That's super interesting that the, the plants themselves have an effect on, on the loads that are required in the, in the building itself. So. Yeah, the, the plants drive everything. You know, yeah. they drive the need for lighting. They drive the need for dehumidification. So, you know, it's critical to understand the, the physiology of the plant um, in order to understand the loads that are generated in these spaces. And that evap evapotranspiration cooling effect ends up, you know, detracting from the heating loads in the space. But, but that results in um, some additional reheat loads that are needed. And so often there's what's missed is that, you know, the, the cooling effect of that evapotranspiration mm -hmm. and the impact that it has on what you need for cooling and then, and then the reheat after the dehumidification. So it seems like when you're looking at a facility that's working with growing cannabis, that interactive effects are going to be essential for kind of modeling out what the potential energy savings and energy impacts are on the type of equipment that you'd be putting in. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, super important. Super important. Yeah. Um, so one thing that's uh, maybe interesting for our listeners to know is, you know, this is uh, an industrial process and there's certainly other types of products that are grown in indoor agricultural settings. Um, as well as other industrial processes that in involve um, controlling lighting, um, temperature, humidity. So how, how is this different than, say, another industrial process or growing something in a greenhouse like tomatoes or something like that? Um, is it dramatically different? And, and if so, how and why? I would say that, you know, a lot of the differences between the way that you know, cannabis is grown and, and other crops are grown is uh, is user-driven, if you will. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of what we refer to as like tribal wisdom in the industry. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, you know, the science and engineering that's been applied to so many other industries really has not been applied to this industry. And so people grow the way that the guy that taught them to grow grew, and he grew the way the guy that taught him to grow grew. Mm -hmm. um, and there's a lot of you know thoughts and feelings on what type of environment you need for cannabis, uh, that you just need to have it be absolutely no outdoor air introduced, you know, due to concerns with uh, mold, powdery mildew, pests, things of that nature. So on the one hand, you have indoor grows that are going out of their way to introduce zero outdoor air and through that are you know paying a bit of a penalty in that they're requiring all space conditioning to be done you know mechanically not taking any advantage of ambient conditions and then on the other hand you have traditional greenhouses growing cannabis very successfully and they're bringing in massive volumes of outdoor air um, so you have different schools of thought with different approaches but both are ending up in the same place which is you know producing a high quality product. Mm -hmm. Totally lost. What was the question, Gita? I was like, difference, <laughs> differences between traditional agricultural crops oh, yes. and, and yep. cannabis. Yeah, uh, and there's definitely, I would say, a lot more concern 
in the cannabis world about um, biosecurity of the crop. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think That's part good. of that is due to the conditions under which it's grown. Part of it is due to the relatively poor environmental control that so many facilities have, which opens them up for things like powdery mildew. Uh, and part of it is the value of the crop, um, which is dropping drastically as you move from west to east. And that's an, another interesting topic. Um, but when your product is worth, you know, $2,000 a pound, you very much want to protect that. You know, a single flower room can be worth hundreds of thousands of dollars for a single uh, flower cycle. Uh, so there's there's a lot of concern about protecting the integrity and the biosecurity of that crop. Absolutely. Um, I, I think a lot of lessons that have already been learned in traditional agriculture are starting to make their way into cannabis. Mm-hmm. Um and I think, uh, conversely, that the focus that's being placed on indoor cannabis cultivation is going to be a catalyst for a revolution in other controlled environment agriculture. Yeah, absolutely. I would I would add on to that that there's a can, there's a lot more cannabis being grown indoors than than there are like tomatoes. You know, almost mm-hmm. almost agriculture controlled environment agriculture operations are done in greenhouses, which mm-hmm. makes sense because it's a lot less uh, energy intensive um, and you know it just makes sense to to do that but cannabis with because it's such a high value crop and because of where it came from this illegal yeah there's illegal market that's moving you know becoming became recently became legal in a lot of places there's you know there are so there's the security issue there's the value of the crop, you know, so they don't want to lose their crop to have it um, be stolen. There's also potentially um, smell issues too. So sometimes they're trying to control the the air that's leaving the grow space because they don't want it smelling like cannabis all around the facility. Um, those, because it will otherwise. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Um, yeah, so I do, I do think that eventually cannabis will move towards how other types of agricultural crops are are, are grown. Um, but that's really where it boils down to is the crop has such a high value that they it's more important to them to maximize the output of their rooms and of their of their plants um, because there's so much money in it. Absolutely. Um, so another question I had. So obviously there are a number of interventions that a grower could use to kind of reduce their utility costs, reduce their demand charges, while also maintaining the, the security and productivity of, of their crops. But, um, you know, one, one thing I've been hearing a lot about in the news is kind of access to capital for, for these types of facilities. Um, so that certainly is something to consider if you're trying to upgrade um, the equipment, um, figure out what's going to be the most effective in terms of um, the energy um, use for the facility. Um, so that uh, is certainly a, a barrier, finding the capital to, to do that and pay for those upgrades. Um, what are what are some of the other uh, barriers that are preventing growers from having the most efficient operation that they can? Sure, so uh, access to capital for sure. Um, I would say uncertainty about the future and direction of the industry as it relates to paybacks on those investments. Um, you know, is there going to be consolidation of the industry? Is there going to be a federal 
legalization, which I believe will drastically change the landscape of cultivation in the country. Uh, there is, I think a lot of it comes back to that tribal wisdom. Um, the vast majority of cultivators are comfortable using 1,000 watt high pressure sodium fixtures as their primary light for flower. Um, why are they comfortable? Because people have been using it for decades successfully. Uh, there's no question it works. Um, so why are they going to switch from a $400 fixture that they know works to an LED fixture that costs literally three times as much and it's difficult still to find you know, quality data, quantifiable data on how the plants perform under LED fixtures. There's so many LED fixtures in the market right now, all claiming to be the best. You know, it's really difficult for a cultivator to, to navigate that and to even determine if LEDs are going to get the job done. Um, most of the cultivators that I've, you know, met with and talked to specifically about LED, when I say, what would I have to show you? What would it take, you know, for you to consider moving to LED fixtures? They all say the same thing. There's nothing you could do. There's nothing you could show me. I would have to test these fixtures myself and prove it to myself that I can get as good or better outputs with these fixtures. And they all follow that by saying, and I don't have the time or the space to do that test. Absolutely. Um, and then on the HVAC side, there is, again, a lack of engineering rigor that's been applied. Uh, there is a shortage of skilled design firms and engineers that, that understand these facilities well enough to uh, appropriately calculate the loads so you can then assess equipment choices. Mm -hmm. There are a number of vendors that are serving this space directly and you know produce equipment with variable sensible heat ratios that are really designed for these, these humid environments. Um, so there's, there's a lot of progress being made on the HVAC side of things. Um, it's not as if we don't know how to dehumidify spaces. We've been dehumidifying pools for a very, very long time. Um, those systems, though, do tend to be quite a bit more expensive than a common combination we see, which is light commercial rooftop units and portable dehumidifiers. You know, that is a very common combination, uh, low cost of entry, um, not particularly efficient, but it gets the job done. And if they need more dehumidification capacity, they roll in another portable dehumidifier. Right. So it seems like there's a, a big need for more data on, on how these systems operate for this particular type of environment and some, um, you know, attitude shifts um, on the part of, of growers to recognize that there's possibly other ways um, of doing it that are not kind of the traditional ways that people have been doing it for a while. Yeah. And a, a lot of cultivators also think that there's something out there in the world called the cannabis tax uh -huh. and anytime they speak with vendors or contractors to do a project um, you know people think that cultivators are just making money hand over fist um, and so there is a belief out there in the world of cultivators that people are charging them more because they think they have a ton of money um, and that's not really the case mm -hmm. uh, and so they're, you know, they're wrestling with project costs that are, are quite high um, and, and do get a sense that maybe the people are trying to take advantage of them because everyone thinks they're just these huge cash cows. Right. Yeah. I, I might add, you know, that um, <clears throat> you know, in terms of barriers, we have 
you know, financing, as long as it's federally, federally illegal, there will be limited bank financing. So mo most financing is being provided by private ed entities who are trying to invest in a business opportunity. And, and that financing is available because folks are, you know, they are making um, money in these operations. But then there's these more complicated barriers where there's these, like the tribal knowledge where folks are skeptical about the ability of LED lights to perform as well as um, HIDs. And because the crop is is a high value crop, it it is a, they're able to get by with inefficiencies in their, their system, like rolling in new dehumidification systems when they can't meet it, because they can they can afford to. They actually can afford to. But as the price comes down, then it puts increasing pressure on these folks to get their act together. And so ultimately, their you know their production rather than you know if we compare it to an industrial process, we have production equipment, you have some type of you know you have injection molding machine, or you have a, a some type of laminating machine. You know the operators get used to how they you know they're using that machine to to produce their product. They don't care too too much really about the the air that's around them. In these indoor ag environments, the production is driven by their ability to control the, the environment. So the ability to control temperature and relative humidity are a huge part of the growth of the plants. And, you know, and they also have, genetics are also really important and the spacing of the plants is also important. But, you know, ultimately they have to have some ownership and understanding how their HVAC equipment works um, in order to make those decisions and operate that equipment because it's driving their, their production. And it's, as we discussed earlier, it's really a complicated process that depends on factors that, that are, they're kind of interdependent. The plant is driving some of the loads and how they, uh, how they, you know, how much water they give the plant is driving how much dehumidification they need from their equipment. So there's, it, it's, there's a lot of understanding that need, um, and that's coming, um, but, you know, it's, it's a complicated process, so it takes time to gain that understanding. As the industry matures, I think that folks will become more and more savvy to the types of dehumidification systems that are available and, and how, uh, how, it can be how it can be done uh, more efficiently. Absolutely. And as you know, Jesse mentioned, there's there is a lot. I don't know if I should say a lot. There's there there is a group of, of professionals, uh, you know, that are working hard to try to bring uh, bring a little light to some of these topics. Uh, Jesse and I are both on technical advisory committees for the Resource Innovation Institute, uh, which is a nonprofit that's you know dedicated to. Um, I'm not going to get their tagline exactly right, but essentially, you know, trying to raise the level of, of sustainability within the cannabis industry. I'm on the HVAC committee. Jesse's on the lighting committee. Um, I'm also on the National Cannabis Industry Association Facility Design Committee. Um, so, you know, that that focus on on the science and the engineering of the facilities serving this industry is 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 catching up. It's coming, and it's driven by the fact that cannabis. Um, it's been legalized that yeah. these operations are popping up everywhere never you know nobody really there were just weren't that many indoor you know sp ag operations before this so this is it had the cannabis industry and the legalization thereof has really driven uh, a large amount of investment in understanding how these uh, how the engineering works and how, and also in the lighting as well I mean there's huge advancements in horticulture lighting that have been made as a result of legalization and, and increased, uh, you know, the proliferation of um, indoor cannabis operations. Absolutely, yeah.
That's great. Um, so coming back, Nick, I think I think you were mentioning earlier that you know the game is going to be totally changed if some things change on the policy level. Say the federal government legalizes it. I don't I don't know if that's um, going to happen soon, but say say it does. Um, what does what does that mean um, for the future of these grow operations? Um, and in general, as the industry matures and as we kind of figure out um, how these uh, different pieces of equipment work together with the plants um, and with the changing prices based on on policy and regulatory changes, what does what does the future of cannabis cultivation look like? Well, I, I can speculate a bunch and, you know, I can repeat things I've heard from other, you know, large cultivators in the industry. Uh, but I think part of the answer is nobody really knows. Um, you know, one issue with the, the fact that it's still federally illegal right now is there, there can be no interstate commerce. Mm -hmm. So cannabis grown in Massachusetts has to stay in Massachusetts. There are geographic regions in the country where it will be more cost effective to produce cannabis than, than other reasons other regions, whether that's because they have lower utility costs, more favorable environments, or places like Pueblo County in Colorado that have just ridiculous amounts of sunlight every year, mm -hmm. uh, you know, they can grow acres and acres and acres of cannabis outdoors at a much lower cost of production right. than a greenhouse or an indoor facility. So, you know, some of the speculation is you're going to end up with sort of a, a tiered industry where there'll be sort of a commodity market that is going to be largely satisfied by large-scale outdoor grows. Mm -hmm. And there may be a boutique market, um, almost like a craft beer type situation. Um, and who knows, that could still remain indoor, it could be greenhouse, it could be hybrid. Uh, and then perhaps there will remain a medicinal specific market that will largely stay indoor um, because of the perception at least that it's a medicine and it's being used for medicinal purposes and needs to be grown under uh, you know tightly controlled conditions who knows how it's going to play out uh, I think it's only a matter of time before it is legalized federally um, and it definitely poses a lot of questions you know a place like Massachusetts with relatively high energy costs and um, Folks may or may not be aware, but Massachusetts has enacted energy efficiency standards for indoor cultivation facilities, and they're pretty aggressive. Um, so, you know, cultivating in Massachusetts is not inexpensive, right. uh, and, and it's hard to understand how those facilities in the long term would be able to compete on a cost of production basis against, you know, large-scale outdoor or greenhouse uh, grows. Mm -hmm. Legalize it federally then um, you know this intercommerce between st state lines um, oh so I was, the comparison to the beer industry I thought mm. I think was really interesting mm -hmm. where you have like the Coors Light you know those are all there's big farm grows outdoors it's probably it's, you have less control over the plant there's less because it's a plant um, you know when the people when in an indoor operation the the grower is going from room to room he's often checking the plants you know he's he's mm -hmm. he's looking at you know he's seeing if the soil is dry does it need more water he's looking at the plants on a really intimate basis and so and that leads that is does lead to a higher quality plant when if you have a huge outdoor grow operation it, it's you know there's not going to be able to give that same level of attention um, to detail on the plants 
versus and and that and it's also possibly a little bit more open to um, the, the getting um, fertilized from a male plant. If there are hemp somewhere else, you know, being grown, and it somehow blows over, and you have this, you know outdoor cannabis grow, you could have some fertilization, yeah, pollinization that, that results in having, you know, seeds in the plant, decreases the quality of the plant, the amount that people would be willing to pay for it, you know, versus these boutique grows where maybe they're using a greenhouse or a hybrid or an indoor grow of some sort, and and they're growing, a, you know, a high-quality product. That's like the your local craft um, beer, you know, which, you know, you're willing to pay more for that because it's, it's a better, it tastes better. Um, it's just a better product, more enjoyable. So I think that does apply here. I, I also think there's this interesting aspect of cannabis where THC is pretty versatile in comparison to like alcohol doesn't get put in food, but THC is is and a, CBD yeah. and, and CBD in terms of food and, and edibles is a is a huge market and that mm -hmm. is really growing. That that part of the market is also growing a lot. And the the extracts, like making extracts, is also growing a lot. And I think that the the growth of those markets has potential to change the way the cannabis market evolves in in the future. And that has implica implications for, you know, if you're you probably don't care if they're you know if you're if you're making it into an extract or making it into an edible, you don't really care if, if it's a super high quality flower. Whereas if it's, you know, if it's being, if the flower itself is being burned in a traditional way, then, um, you know, you probably do care more about the quality and flavor of that um, mm -hmm. flower itself. Mm -hmm. Makes yeah, sense. So it's really, it's really competitive for the cultivators, um, you know, because there's a, there's a limited market and they're all trying to get a share of that market. And they do that through, yeah, trying to get the highest THC percentages through novel terpene profiles. The terpenes are what give the cannabis, you know, its, its different tastes and flavors um, through something they call bag appeal, which is just how attractive are the flowers? You know, how, how good looking are the buds? Um, you know, like Jess said, I, I hope for the industry that it can follow sort of a craft beer uh, type uh, model. Um, just because of all of the entrepreneurs that have, you know, taken a lot of risk to get their grows up and running, and it seems like a shame if it would all be swept away by giant conglomerates. Um, but it, going back to the federal legalization for a second, that is another potential outcome that I've heard folks talk about is if it were to become legal federally, then it would open it up for trade throughout North America. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the cultivation would go to places like Mexico and Colombia, where it could be produced outdoors on a massive scale with, again, even lower cost of operation, and really it would become a commodity. Right. Um, so who knows? And if you can under, you know, if you can produce a product that is, you know, equal in quality or close to it, and sell it at a much lower price point, it's a pretty expensive product. Then I, I, I think that um, that would do, you know, would do well in the market um, as long as you could verify that it wasn't contaminated with like pesticides or because that's also a concern is that nobody wants to put something poisonous in their body uh, like you know something you know, pesticides and so it has to be tested there has to be regulations developed and implemented to control the quality of the product. Yeah, that that makes a lot of sense. Um, Anything in particular you guys are really excited for um, in the cannabis grow industry from the efficiency side? Yeah, um, I'm excited about 
the attention it's getting, honestly. Um, it's really great to see these various groups like uh, Resource Innovation Institute and others, um, you know, really putting a focus on this. It's great to see that utilities and municipalities are now paying attention and are investing in, you know, data collection even. And, you know, there's still a whole lot to be learned about these facilities in, in order to, you know, design incentive programs, in order to, you know, further refine best practices and approaches. Um, so I know this is still very early in its sort of nascent stages, uh, and I'm just excited about the fact that people are starting to pay attention and put some effort into this. Um, I think that LED lighting is inevitable. Um, you know, we've seen enough folks grow very successfully with, with LED fixtures, and I think it's just a matter of time before the technology uh, and the experience using that technology hits uh, a tipping point and it becomes uh, almost a necessity due to the savings associated with it. Uh, and similar on the HVAC side, um, just excited that you know, people are starting to pay attention to that. When we started this three something years ago, it really people just talked about lighting. Mm -hmm. um, and if, if a cultivator is not interested in converting to LED, there are very little lighting opportunities left. And so what does that leave you? It leaves you HVAC. Uh, and you know, people now recognize that HVAC is responsible for, in many cases, as much energy use as the lights. Uh, and there are a lot more uh, solutions to that particular problem um, than just weighing HID versus LED on the lighting side of things. Yeah, I would uh, I would agree with Nick or Echo in, in terms of uh, I'm really excited to see this industry being incorporated into like utility energy incentive programs because that's the industry we work in so it's it's great to see those um, you know see those folks developing programs targeting these um, these new customers because they need the help they definitely need the help mm -hmm. um, really excited to actually see the development of horticulture lighting so you know the horticulture lighting has been LED lighting has been rapidly developing in terms of um, the efficiency of those products, so we the the main manufacturers, the the biggest you know manufacturers of LED horticulture lighting have they've been releasing their what I've been calling their second generation. It really might be kind of their third generation, but you know the last generation of fixtures was actually in terms of um, efficiency. When you look at the the, the amount of useful um, we didn't really get into this, and, and LED horticulture lighting, it, horticulture lighting in general, there's a whole terminology that you have to learn in order to really talk about it. But but effectively, um, th those those 1,000-watt double-ended high-pressure sodium fixtures were actually fairly efficient fixtures, and LED fixtures have only recently surpassed them in terms of efficiency. And the amount of improvement that LED fixtures went from just the last generation of fixtures to the newest generation of fixtures being released just now, it's like a 20 or 30 percent improvement in terms of efficiency, in terms of the amount of useful light they put out to the watts they take in. So that was just one generation over the course of one to two years. Mm -hmm. And the DOE is estimating that they're going to basically improve ultimately by another, it's like another it's a it's a large percent. I'm hesitant to go out there. It's like they they're estimating they'll get to four um, uh, micro it's uh, micromoles per joule. Yeah. yeah, it's the PPE. It's the photosynthetic um, 
photon efficacy. And so there's a lot of improvement that's going to continue to happen there. And I, I'm, I'm frankly excited to see that happen because I, I think it's cool to see such rapid development happening in front of our eyes. Um, you know, since so this development of a, a nascent industry, just like computers and the, you know, in, uh, internet of things, it's, it's, it's happening before our eyes, this, this development. I think it's really cool. Yeah, that's that. It's really cool to see kind of how um, policy and, and regulatory changes have affected this particular industry and uh, the the add-on impacts of um, adjacent industries like energy efficiency or um, uh, utilities um, and how they're dealing with that. So it, it seems like there's a lot of rapid growth, and and it'd be great to to check in in the very near future to see how things are progressing and, and growing. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, ask us in a year uh, where we're at now. Definitely. Um, Jesse, Nick, thank you so much for, for speaking with us. Um, this was a super informative conversation. Awesome, thank Great. you. Yeah, thanks for having us. All right, talk to you guys later. Bye. All right. Bye. Thanks for listening. This podcast was made possible by Zonditz. For more clean energy news, check out zonditz.com, Z-O-N-D-I-T-S.com. We received help from our friends at ERS, and our music was written and performed by Isaac Weinstein.